about 20% of autistic individuals have experienced some degree of catatonic symptomatology over the course of their life. No inpatient psychiatric facilities in Tennessee or Georgia were willing to accept him for inpatient care. This is not uncommon. Well, I can show you data, I can show you numbers, I can tell you that things are statistically significant, but at the end of the day, these are real folks who their lives are being significantly impacted by catatonic features. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's webinar. We have a very special guest, Dr. Joshua Ryan Smith of Vanderbilt. Today, he's going to be discussing catatonia in pediatric and neurodiverse populations. I am Jackie Cancier, state chair for the Tennessee chapter of National Council on Severe Autism. Dr. Joshua Ryan Smith's primary research interest is in bridging the gap between clinical trial research and clinical care. His specific areas of interest include use of transcranial magnetic stimulation in autism, catatonia and neurodevelopmental conditions, consult liaison psychiatry in children's hospitals, and electroconvulsive therapy. Dr. Smith serves as an ad hoc reviewer for the following journals, Journal of American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, Journal of Autism and Developmental Disorders, as well as Brain and Behavior. At the national levels, Dr. Smith participates in the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, Psychopharmacology, and Neurotherapeutics Workgroup. Dr. Smith is an assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral services at Vanderbilt University Medical Center and the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center. He is the medical director of the MEND Clinic at Vanderbilt and of Neuromodulation Service at Vanderbilt Psychiatric Hospital. And we are so grateful he is here to talk about something that not a lot of people are talking enough about. So Dr. Smith, it's all yours. Thank you, Jackie, for that kind introduction. I appreciate it. So today we're talking about catatonia in pediatric and neurodiverse populations. And I have a couple of disclosures. Uh, we will show some videos and pictures as we go. And I've talked to Jackie. When this gets uploaded, we will um, not include the videos and pictures for sort of wide distribution uh, to try to maintain anonymity. But consent was obtained from parents and patients to use the following videos and pictures. Um, I also have a relationship with a few industry-sponsored clinical trials for autism, including Janssen, Roche, and Axial. Uh, they pay a little bit of my salary and we uh, do a clinical trial work with them. And then I also have grant salary support from um, the national uh, the NICHD Child and Human Development. So our learning objectives for today, we're going to try to work on identifying specific symptoms of catatonia that are unique to children and those with neurodiverse backgrounds. We're going to talk about treatment planning for cases of pediatric and also neurodiverse catatonia and discuss the history of adult and pediatric ECT use in catatonia and other conditions. And then we're actually going to uh, talk about something that's near and dear to my heart, talk about uh, restrictive legislation, state-dependent barriers to ECT, as well as the stigma associated with ECT. So when I give these talks, I like to frame things around, um, you know, specific patients because, and again, families have given me consent to discuss this, but it's really, uh, I think, much more impactful if we talk about you know, real people. I can show you data. I can show you numbers. I can tell you that things are statistically significant. But at the end of the day, these are real folks who uh, their lives are being significantly impacted by catatonic features, um, either for themselves or or for their their children or other dependents. So this is LS. Um, he's a 16 year old biologically male individual with profound autism who present to the Vanderbilt Children's. So VCH is Vanderbilt Children's ED with increased aggression toward his family. So a year prior, he was restrained at school, experienced a loss of previously acquired skills. 
had reduced verbal ability. He began screaming at home and became mute, which is not an uncommon finding. And we can discuss that more. And he could no longer feed or assist himself in, um, in toileting. And he began staring intensely. So uh, he was actually a rare example of an outpatient psychiatrist who appropriately diagnosed uh, catatonia and started lorazepam, which is the first line treatment for catatonia. He was increased to 16 milligrams a day. There were significant improvements over the first few months, but then aggression returned. He was started on zeprazidone for aggression, but symptoms worsened, which is a, a pretty common feature in catatonia that these higher potency antipsychotics can worsen catatonia. Excuse me. So essentially, antipsychotics that are safer in catatonia end in PINE, olanzapine, clozapine, quetiapine, and the ones that are less safe end in done, risperidone, zeprazidone, and so on. Ones that end in azole, uh, aripiprazole in particular, are also safe in catatonia. So he was on this dose of lorazepam, and then parents started reporting breakthrough symptoms when the next dose was due. So he presented to the emergency department, and like many agitated kids or adults who present to emergency departments, he got haloperidol and lorazepam. Haloperidol is a um, antipsychotic, and again, it can potentially worsen symptoms of catatonia. So the haloperidol and lorazepam put him to sleep, but he woke up, he had something called active negativism, which is a really unique finding in catatonia, which essentially means that he would do the exact opposite of what was requested of him. So I would ask him to sit, he would stand, I'd ask him to, um, you know, uh, walk to the door, he'd walk to the window, so on and so forth. So no inpatient psychiatric facilities in Tennessee or Georgia were um, willing to accept him for inpatient care. This is not uncommon. So in our sort of tri-state area, the only uh, inpatient psychiatric facility for folks with profound impairment is Laurel Heights in Atlanta. And so he was declined by all facilities. We placed the ECT consult. So when you're treating catatonia, we'll walk through a little bit of the algorithm for treatment. But when you're treating catatonia, you start with benzodiazepines and then consider ECT along with other additional medication options. So because he's 16 and in the state of Tennessee, we had to have two consultations done and the first of the two was done during admission. And then we began following him in our clinic. So he initially presented, so the Bush-Francis catatonia rating scale is the measure that we use to assess catatonia. And it's actually not designed for folks with uh, neurodiverse populations or children. And so oftentimes you can get lower scores. So it's a maximum score of 69, but really anything above 20 is considered moderately severe. But as you can see, he had a score of 10. And this did not represent sort of the degree of symptom burden that he had, but it was a, it was a positive screen and did help us in identifying, okay, this is catatonium, we should treat it. So we stopped lorazepam and transitioned him to clonazepam. And we'll talk about why we did that here in a moment. And then with the lack of inpatient options, he was discharged home, and then we followed him up in the, the men clinic, in our outpatient clinic here. So this is a quick video of some of the aggressive um, symptoms he's having, but I'll also point out there are some really unique features. I'll try to pause that he's demonstrating, and again, uh, thank you to the family for offering us permission to use this video. So this is, so in catatonia, there's this thing called mannerisms. And mannerisms are basically purposeful movements or purposeful activity really that, that could potentially cause self-injury. They're different from a stereotypy, which many of you are probably familiar with and sort of hand flapping and rhythmic activities, but they actually seem to have a purpose or goal, but they can result in self-injury. And I would describe the sort of chair picking up as manneristic. Hi. 
So he's pausing here and he has flaring of his fingers. As you can see, this is a, a brief moment of posturing. So if you can, he, he looks uncomfortable, obviously, but he has this brief period of posturing there. And I'm sorry, I neglected to mention the, the screaming is called vergiberation or verbigoration, depending on who's saying it. it's kind of potato potato situation. Um, but the as a new onset symptom, if it's been present lifelong, it's, it's likely not related to catatonia. But this was a new um, a new feature for him. What's wrong? So again, he you know pausing there has the flaring of the fingers and the posturing, and I, I won't show the the rest of the video because it can be a little distressing. But he he was aggressive, um, and then had some periods of staring towards his family member who was trying to calm him down. So just as a quick review, the Lancet Commission for the Future of Clinical Care for Autism um, released a article in 2021, and basically they introduced this term profound autism. And profound autism, as you, you guys probably all well know, it was sort of, um, it was contested as to whether this was a, a good idea to, to use this nomenclature. But it means requiring 24-hour access to an adult who can care for folks likely for the remainder of their lives, being unable to live alone or attend to basic daily needs, IQ less than 50 and limited verbal ability. And we'll use this term today. And what I'd like to point out too, is that autism may present with or without intellectual disability or a minimally verbal or non-speaking status. And that's super important because the prevalence of intellectual disability, depending on the research you read, is about 30 to 50% of autistic individuals. But in autism clinical research, they're only folks with comorbid intellectual disability are only included about five to six percent of clinical research. And unfortunately, it looks like that number is worsening over time. So part of what Dr. Lord and colleagues from the Lancet Commission were trying to do to describe the term profound autism was to say, hey, we know this needs to be researched. If we use this uh, term, we may be able to you know, more uh, accurately describe what people are experiencing and, and conduct research on it. And so that was the the intention behind it. And it looks like that, you know, for folks with autism plus intellectual disability, there's a higher risk of aggression or what I would call externalizing behavior, self-injury, et cetera. There's also a higher risk of medical or psychiatric hospitalization. And honestly, this is even like in places that can access care. Some places, um, you know, are more rural and, and folks can't even get into a hospital, even though they may need it. And one of the sort of hills I die on pretty frequently with, uh, with, other you know, providers and our trainees is that we we need to think about aggression, uh, particularly in neurodiverse adults and children as, okay, this person's aggressive. They're either are or are not normally aggressive, but is there a way we can intervene upon the aggression and try to help with, you know, lessening the intensity or the severity? And if we're able to do that, how do we do that? And then can we think of causes potentially of aggression at the lowest level? Constipation is a very common cause of aggression in this population. At a higher level, can we think about mood disorders or even catatonia? And I'm trying to encourage you all to consider catatonia as a potential cause for aggression in this population. So catatonia has been around a long time. This was first described in the 1800s. It's a psychomotor syndrome with affective domains and distinct physical examination findings. It's classically described in schizophrenia, mood disorders, or medical illnesses. And for, for children, actually, about 20% of catatonia cases 
are likely from a, a medical illness. Most often encephalitis is the, the cause of that. And we see that um, at some relative frequency at the children's hospital. And we have a, a protocol for identifying those patients and intervening upon um, treatment relatively rapidly. And there is this large meta-analysis. If you're unfamiliar with meta-analytic work, it's basically where people uh, take the, the current research and sort of smush it down and make a, a paper that has um, really good conclusions based on the current literature. And this uh, this individual, Vicarzo Serrano and his team, estimated that about 20% of autistic individuals have experienced some degree of catatonic symptomatology over the course of their life. And the most common symptoms of catatonian autism are a loss of previously acquired verbal or communicative skill. And this is, this is nuanced and not captured by our traditional catatonia sort of assessment measures, right? So if you have someone who signs at baseline and they have reduced ability to sign, I would count that as a positive loss of previously acquired communicative skill, but that would not be detected on the Bush-Francis catatonia rating scale, for example. And there's, you know, other examples would be the use of a communication device or, you know, and, and this requires a lot of collaboration with families because sometimes kids have a lot of nonverbal, kids and adults have a lot of nonverbal cues that families are really um, attuned uh, to, but the provider may not be. And so, you know, being attentive and listening to saying like, hey, my my kid or, you know, my whoever, my my nephew is not communicating in a way that he usually communicates with me, that should be a red flag. And then a lack of cooperation or negativism. And this is, you know, kids um, and, and young adults don't always want to do what folks ask them to do. So this is a little bit nuanced. Uh, but this is like a severe iteration of this, uh, as we said. So active negativism is a potential component of it where someone will literally do the exact opposite that's asked of them. And it's very automatic. And so really what you're looking for is a change in baseline behavior. And then agitation and aggression is another one. And again, you know, folks can have a baseline level of aggression or agitation in the context of having a difficult time communicating, but it's a, it's a change in baseline, you know, where someone comes in and says, Hey, look, over the past three months, like we can't even leave the house. We can't go to the grocery store because my child is attacking people that we pass by that, that would be an example of a significant change from baseline. And then when you think about catatonian children, Children from neurodiverse backgrounds are at elevated risk for catatonia. And there's some really interested, interesting um, research from particularly a group in Paris where they looked at the, the rates of comorbid genetic conditions and the, the risk of catatonia. And they were much higher in, the, in folks with genetic conditions um, or genetic diagnoses. And similar to catatonia autism, children are more likely to have externalizing symptoms. So recurrent self-injury, negativism, and physical aggression. And actually, I, I should say, too, these are the most common symptoms in, of autism, um, of catatonia autism. But something I'll say, too, is that recurrent self-injury, particularly biting or chewing of fingers or, um, you know, having stereotypies like rubbing oneself until there's abrasions is considered also along the catatonic spectrum. But that's something that's a little bit difficult to describe. And so I would argue that that's a pretty common feature of catatonia autism, but um, is not well captured on a lot of our assessment measures. And so it would not be listed as the most common symptom, but it's definitely one that I consider when I see folks. And then negativism, again, and, and physical aggression, potentially. So for kiddos, um, they actually, the, the same group from Paris um, made the pediatric catatonia rating scale. And they described specific symptoms that are unique to children. 
and nuance that urinary incontinence is one. Uh, Acrocyanosis, where somebody has really cold extremities, uh, is another. And it may be indicative of something called malignant catatonia, which is a can be a medical emergency where there's um, significant vital sign changes that are happening in the setting of catatonia. And schizophagia, which is scrambled speech, um, it, it basically is, um, it's really profound when you see it, but someone is speaking in a full sentence, but the words have no connection. Uh, it's it's hard for me to even sort of um, offer an example, but if you can imagine a random assortment of words uh, where the person believes they're communicating in a full sentence, that that's what it looks like. And then automatic compulsive movements, this would be like uh, repetitive grimacing or, you know, it's called orofacial dyskinesia where basically they're, they're doing this on a, and it generally will have a, a rhythmic kind of uh, presentation to it. So one of the things that makes catatonia really difficult to diagnose in any population is that there's two versions. There's, um, and patients can fluctuate between the two presentations. You can have a hypoactive catatonia, which is sort of the traditional catatonia that you all may consider when you hear the term, where someone is stuck with a fixed gaze, they're not eating, they're sort of wasting away. And that's more the classic version of catatonia. If you if you look up on like a YouTube clip catatonia, generally, that's what you'll see. But the hyperactive iteration seems to be more common for children and folks with neurodiverse backgrounds. And this is presenting with extreme agitation. And one of the things that is really important there is that it can be extreme agitation, but it doesn't lose some of the other features. So there would still be abnormal physical exam findings, which are associated with catatonia. There may also be reduced oral intakes so or reduced food, uh, reduced water. And you would have, um, you know, some of the, the posturing may occur, as you saw in the video. So definitely hyperactive, but having some of the posturing that's occurring that happens like that. And if you're not looking for it, you'll miss it. And so it's it's important to recognize that while these seem very different, there's a there's a lot of symptoms that may connect the two. And just to introduce you all to these terminologies, the Bush-Francis is the most widely used scale. Um, it's considered the gold standard for assessing catatonia, but it doesn't help with so affective means mood. So it doesn't really assess for mood symptoms that you can see in catatonia. And it's also not great with, um, not as good in pediatric data and neurodevelopmental data. Honestly, it, it can detect and positively screen for and really assess symptomatology catatonia relatively well. It's just not as specific as the pediatric catatonia rating scale. So again, this was developed by the group in France in 2006. And it includes the specific symptoms we discussed. And then there's the Canner catatonia rating scale, which is my favorite. Um, it includes a severity measure and a physical examination. It's designed for folks with catatonia in the context of neurodevelopmental disorders. It's more precise, but it also may miss some of the pediatric specific symptoms. For example, it doesn't include an assessment for acrocyanosis for cold extremities. So um, in 2023, there was an international consensus guideline by uh, Dr. Rogers and colleagues. Dr. Rogers is a, um, a psychiatrist in London who does really amazing work for catatonia in adults. And he and this very large group of folks who all do excellent work got together and they put evidence-based guidelines for basically anyone being treated for, for catatonia. And given our patient's symptom severity, we opted for you know pursuing ECT and pharmacologic interventions. And so the lorazepam was no longer helpful at what we would consider to be a relatively high dose of 60 milligrams. So, what's, so what do we do next? So this is a paper by Scott Beach and colleagues. Uh, Dr. Beach is at Mass General Hospital and does has done really great research on catatonia in adults for a long time. 
And he, um, he offers this sort of stepwise approach to how to treat catatonia. So you start with intravenous lorazepam and you try to transition to oral lorazepam as quickly as you can. So lorazepam is Ativan, it's benzodiazepine. And we found that you can use other benzodiazepines and we'll, we'll get into that shortly. And then ideally you move to ECT and he says at least six treatments, but in the emerging data for ECT and autism suggests that it's many more treatments than six to have stabilization of catatonic features in the setting of autism. And then a glutamate antagonist, um, which are the two medications listed there, amantadine and romantine, anti-seizure meds, and then considering an antipsychotic. But when you do pediatric work, um, it it's, gets a little bit more complicated because ECT is so difficult to access for, for children. And we'll talk a little bit more about this, but I'll, I'll walk you through my sort of regimen. So I'll do IV lorazepam. And then if I can't move to ECT, I'll do a glutamate antagonist next. And then I'll consider anti-epileptic. And then I'll think about an antipsychotic and then move to you know, potentially ECT at that point. But for adults, oftentimes I will really encourage families to consider moving to ECT sooner rather than later because the gold standard of treatment for catatonia is a combination of benzodiazepines and electroconvulsive therapy. But for kids, and particularly folks with autism, the when you go look in the literature, the effectiveness of lorazepam has been called into question by some of the, the more prevalent catatonia researchers in the past couple of years. And we've had more success with longer-acting benzodiazepines. And some of this was brought about by um, happenstance because we had an international lorazepam shortage, um, I, guess, I guess it was two years ago now, maybe a year and a half. And we had to use diazepam and we started noticing that folks were actually doing better with the diazepam than the lorazepam. So we started asking ourselves why. And, and, you know, we thought about a lot of these things that families report when we're treating their kiddos with catatonia is that they'll have breakthrough symptoms the next time the dose of lorazepam is due. And so you'd think, okay, that, that's an interesting finding and, and it happens pretty consistently. So would a longer acting medicine be more helpful? And when you think about autism and you think about children, um, both, both of their brains are potentially hyperconnected and they also, um, adapt to systems really quickly. So one of the, um, prevailing hypotheses behind autism is that folks with autism have a reduced amount of a certain kind of, um, neuron in their brain called parvalbumin, which basically uh, tamps down or, you know, makes the brain more inhibitory in nature. And when you're, when you're aging about around the age two to three, the brain flips from being primarily excitatory to being primarily inhibitory. And that's when we actually see a lot of folks report autistic regression for, for folks that have and develop autism. And so the, the idea is that, okay, if there's a reduced amount of this neuron in the brain, then the brain becomes hyper-connected and it also becomes hyper-excitable. And so in theory, anytime you introduce a medication to the brain, it may rapidly acclimate to the, to the, um, to the medication. The brain may rapidly acc acclimate to the medication, which is something that families have reported to providers for years and years, right? Like, um, you know, my child has autism and we put them on, you know, whatever Prozac or Abilify or something like that. And it worked for, two weeks and then it stopped working. It's an interesting finding. And then we sort of thought, okay, is that, you know, potentially applicable to catatonia? And is it something that we, can we address with longer acting benzodiazepines? And when you think about kids, 
kids naturally have hyperconnected brains, right? So they're always constantly learning, always, you know, growing. And so their brains are hyperplastic or hyper adjustable, right? And so in theory, the the problem would be the same for both someone with autism and uh, and a child. So we did a couple, of, we have a couple of publications on this. This was our first one. And it's a, this is a case series where we advocated for the use of uh, longer acting benzodiazepines for people that have failed lorazepam. And this was our larger study that came out um, a couple of months later. And I'm going to review the data with you all. So this includes only children. And we had 30, and it's not, it's not exclusive to folks with autism and catatonia. So we'll, and we'll sort of review that in a moment. So all of these children were treated with either clonazepam or diazepam instead of lorazepam. So clonazepam and diazepam are long-acting benzodiazepines. Excuse me, they stay in the system much longer. And so in theory, if they're in someone's sort of in, in their system much longer, it gives less time for the brain to acclimate to the medicine when it's introduced. Whereas uh, Ativan or lorazepam, when you introduce it, it's a shorter acting agent. So it leaves the brain and the brain can, you know, say, oh, the Ativan was here. I'm going to change and adapt to it. Whereas, you know, in theory, having a longer acting agent keeps the medicine more available to the brain. And, and because it's sort of there and present, it doesn't give the, the brain time to, to adjust. So the, the average age of the kiddos that we treated was 13 and a half. And interestingly, 80% of the kids, so we had 31 kids, 80% of the kids had previously been prescribed a, a different psychiatric medication. We saw them and 84%. So the overwhelming majority of kids in this population um, were neurodiverse or had a comorbid neurodevelopmental disorder diagnosis. And then again, overwhelmingly, um, 87% of the folks that we treated were prescribed clonazepam. And the mean dose range was seven milligrams, which I want you to remember here in a second. And then the diazepam, we have 13%. And then the mean range for that was 161. So if we look at clonazepam in particular, that's about 14 to 28 milligrams of lorazepam. And so if we think back to our, our friend's initial dose of the, the medicine, he was on 10 or 16 milligrams. So we're still needing potentially to even go higher than that as we're converting over to clonazepam. And sort of the old adage in catatonia care is that you, you treat until someone's sedated or you treat until they fall asleep. And a lot of times that requires very, very high doses of the medicine. And then there were some other additional medicines that we used. Uh, these NMDA receptor antagonists, about almost half of them were, were, prescri or were prescribed this, antiepileptics and then antipsychotics. And in this study, we only used aripiprazole or clozapine. Again, Quetiapine, olanzapine, clozapine, aripiprazole are all safe agents to use in the, in the treatment of catatonia. And we also found that the overwhelming majority of patients who had improvement in their catatonic symptoms were on a benzo plus something else. So there were, um, uh, as you can see here, this one is folks that improved without, with a benzo without any other medicine. These are the number of folks that needed a benzo plus an additional medicine. And then these are the folks that have benzo plus two medicines. Um, so you can see here, the majority of people need an additional agent for, for stabilization. 
And this is a, a box and whiskers plot. These are my favorite sort of figures, honestly. But it basically, we had statistically significant reductions in catatonic symptoms, regardless of the measure that we used. So we had the Bush-Francis catatonia rating scale. We had statistically significant reduction here. Catatonia severity scale from the canner reduction here. And then the canner catatonia examination, we had, we had a reduction there as well. So continuing on with our example of our friend, we had to increase clonazepam to 10 milligrams three times a day, which is approximately equivalent to 60 to 120 milligrams of lorazepam, which is very large doses. But we didn't see any sedation really at that dose. Started having a little bit of slowing, but it wasn't stuff like falling asleep or you know really having a difficult time. There were some, some challenges with uh, ambulation with walking about and, and whatnot, but not necessarily falling asleep and still having some aggressive symptoms. So we continue to go up. We started memantine at 20 milligrams twice a day. Lithium was initiated and levels of therapeutic because there was concern there may be an underlying mood disorder there as well. And, and as you guys likely know, it's hard. It's really hard to evaluate for uh, potential underlying mood disorders for folks that have difficulty in communicating. Clozapine was initiated and increased, and then um, our friend got ECT on a weekly basis, and he received ketamine for IV placement, which is not an uncommon uh, thing that we need to do for folks that are a little bit more wiggly. So then we referred our friend to genetics, and he was diagnosed with Phelan McDermott syndrome, which was a really uh, key, pivotal sort of thing that happened because Phelan McDermott syndrome is classically associated with uh, catatonic features. And then he is not the, the only case of folks that we've diagnosed with, um, with genetic conditions after catatonia presents. Uh, this is another case report that we had, someone who was diagnosed with 22Q11.2 uh, syndrome after catatonia happened uh, in later adolescence, and we referred them for genetics. And again, the, the Paris group, um, and I'm happy to, to offer references if you guys would like to review, but Basically, there was a pretty high prevalence rate of genetic conditions and catatonia in their sample. So we had improvement over 16 months. His aggression remitted. His sleep cycle improved. He started uh, working on eating solid food, trying to participate in speech and language therapy. And then in June, the family started reporting a little bit more sedation. So I'm going to take a little bit of a, a left turn and talk about the history of electroconvulsive therapy and, and where a lot of... Um, the stigma comes from despite its, its effectiveness. So in 1934, Dr. Maduna, who you can see here, was working in one of the larger asylums. Um, and he noticed that his patients who had epilepsy and psychosis had lower rates, had clinical improvement of their psychosis after a seizure. And they did post-mortem brain examinations where they found that there was increased glia, which is basically a, a maintenance sort of neuron in the brain for folks that had epilepsy and psychosis relative to people who just had psychosis. So they started using something called camphor oil to induce seizures, and they all had really significant clinical improvements. And the results were published in 1935, but unfortunately his academic career was cut short um, due to the rise of anti-Semitism, and he had to immigrate to the States. And that brings us to Dr. Soretti. In 1938 in Rome, he was the first person to use ECT uh, to induce seizures with the same objective of using a therapeutic seizure to improve symptoms of psychiatric conditions. And he noted improvements in bipolar disorder, depression, and psychosis, and was actually nominated for a Nobel Prize. 
In the UK, uh, the first documented use of pediatric ECT was in a three-year-old with intractable epilepsy. Interestingly, you can use ECT to treat intractable epilepsy. The, the literature on it is still growing, um, even though we've been documenting it since 1940. It's really challenging to you know, conduct a randomized control trial or something like that that would be considered a really high-quality trial for folks that are are dealing with really life-threatening conditions, but there, there's, uh, particularly in Maryland, there's a group that uses ECT for intractable epilepsy. And there have been many safe and effective case reports and retrospective reviews, but there hasn't been any prospective studies. And when I say retrospective, that means you get the chart, you look backwards, you say, hey, how did things go? And you make sort of conclusions from that. Prospective is when you have, um, you're collecting data in real time and reporting it. And that, that's what we're trying to do at, at Vanderbilt now is, we published a lot of retrospective data, and now we're trying to collect uh, prospective data to Im improve the overall quality in, in our conclusions. And then in 1960, the, there was the development of medications, so you know Prozac and antipsychotics and whatnot. And there was a decline in the use of ECT, and there was rising stigma and then uh, restrictive legislation as well. So definitely ECT, when they first started doing it, they they were operating in, in not ideal situations. And um, they would induce a seizure and would generally not put the patients to sleep, or they would not also use a, a muscle paralytic to make sure they didn't have, you know, herky-jerky movements and they didn't have an anesthesia team present. This is all very, very different from modern iterations of ECT. So we, in the ECT suite, we have a full anesthesia team available to us. We put people to sleep before we induce a seizure. We monitor their seizure really carefully on uh, EEG. So we have electrical leads that are, you know, showing the seizure activity. We provide respiratory support and after people are asleep, we actually do paralyze their muscles. So they don't have, you know, what you would associate with like a large generalized tonic-clonic seizure. And then there are, you know, certainly risks, the, the most significant of which is short-term working memory deficits. Um, but, you know, we, we've recently published a paper that I'll, I'll share here in a moment where we looked at the children that we treated with ECT over the past 10 years, regardless of their diagnosis. And many of them were so ill that they weren't able to characterize their side effect burden. Um, you know, if they were catatonic and not speaking, um, it was difficult for them to even say, hey, I'm having short-term memory memory deficit. So this, this is sort of the level of um, symptom severity that, that we're looking at. And then muscle soreness is certainly a risk. And then anytime you go under generalized anesthesia, there's, there's a risk associated with that. So ECT is actually FDA approved for, for catatonia, and it's the gold standard along with benzodiazepines. It's FDA approved for depression. It has much higher response rates than uh, pharmacologic interventions. So the response rates are about 60 to 80% relative to 40% for pharmacologic interventions. And depression, interestingly, every time someone with depression sort of transitions to a different medicine, their chances of having um, remission of their symptoms goes down by about five to 10%. And ECT has actually been shown to be effective for those specific kind of patients who have taken a medicine and it's um, the depression is refractory to them to the medicine. ECT's uh, response rate of 68% still still remains pretty high. And then for bipolar disorder, it's effective for both manic and depressive phases, and if it's also effective for psychosis. And it's interesting um, in depression and bipolar disorder, you can have psychosis as a component of both of those conditions. And if psychosis is present, ECT is actually more effective, which to my knowledge is the only sort of thing we have in psychiatry, it's more effective if psychosis is present. Generally, if psychosis is present in a mood disorder, um, the medicines are less effective, but ECT becomes more effective. And then we also use it in neuroleptic malignant syndrome, uh, refractory Parkinson's disease, and, and again, refractory uh, um, epilepsy, which is called status epilepticus. 
So it's very safe. Um, well, it's very effective. It's very safe, but it is not a benign treatment. Anytime you go under generalized anesthesia, it's not you know, benign intervention. But we've treated folks as young as eight to eighty-eight, and have had you know generally really good outcomes. And it can be a life-saving intervention for both adults and children. But use is limited, so there's really restrictive legislation, particularly in the state of Tennessee. And uh, California and Texas are even more restrictive than Tennessee. It's basically a full stop for anyone under sixteen. And then stigma is a really big limiting factor. Uh, there's still a lot of stigma associated with ECT. And we've had survey studies that have actually shown that pediatric psychiatrists are generally kind of uncomfortable with ECT. And it makes sense. If you're in a state that has restrictive legislation, you may be less comfortable because it's less likely that your patients are receiving it. And to just kind of paint a, a picture here, this is a child with schizophrenia. She was 13 and she really needed ECT. She had catatonia. And we applied for uh, a judicial, when when a child is under 14 in the state of, of Tennessee, you have to have a judge approve treatment. And it took us about 16 days to get that scheduled. And so we're looking at, she's not, she's coming in, not eating. We have a delay in legislation for about 16 days. We're able to start and then she's able to eat starting at day 27. And so you can see a significant amount of symptoms sort of remaining present, um, due to an inability to access ECT from the legislation side of things. And uh, we just published this paper where I'll go through the results of that with you. I kind of referenced it already. So over the past 12 years, we've treated 36 pediatric patients and in, in, with ECT, and that number has gone up significantly over the past three years. Um, the average age was 15. We had a large number of patients who were from out of state or on Medicaid. And then we, the overall primary indication uh, was most often catatonia. And these also, these clinical indications can cross over. You can certainly have catatonia plus psychosis plus suicidal thoughts. And so these are all the reasons that um, ECT was uh, was used for, for kiddos in that, in that study. And then we had a, oops, oh, so sorry. We had a significant number of folks who had autism with intellectual disability and autism without IDD, Phil and McDermott syndrome, and then 22Q11 deletion syndrome. And then we had a, a few patients who had catatonia in the setting of an MDA receptor encephalitis and seronegative autoimmune encephalitis. And interestingly, a lot of patients had tried um, psychiatric medications beforehand, 86%, and the average number of failed medication trials was, five, um, was 5.6. And the American Association of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, excuse me, recommends considering ECT after three failed medications. And so it's often, um, you know, it's, it's more than likely that these, these kiddos would have benefited from ECT earlier in their, in their presentation. And we even had patients who had up to 16 failed medication trials, which was, um, was really challenging on the, the patient and the family. And I will say for, for kiddos, there is a risk of prolonged seizures that's not observed in adults. And that's again, because their brain's probably hyper adjustable, hyperplastic. And in our study, we found that about 6% of the um, of the pediatric ECT procedures we had had a prolonged seizure associated with it. And we were able to stop uh, those seizures with either interventions with medication, or you can actually break a seizure using uh, another stimulation of ECT. And as I said earlier, you know, we're, we're treating really sick kiddos. So 58% of these kids, as they were getting treatment, were unable to verbalize side effects uh, because they were so acutely ill. And then generalized body aches was very common, as was short-term memory loss. And I'll spare you guys the sort of details of this here, but basically we had a group of us who went back and read all the charts 
and looked through them very carefully. And we rated if they improved or if they didn't improve. And we, we reached fiscal significance improvement in that measure, as well as the Bush Francis for the, the kids who were catatonic. So our friend up till today, uh, we've been able to reduce his medicine requirement to three milligrams three times a day, and we've continued to taper and his sedation has improved. All his other medicines remain the same. He's, uh, his aggression has been in general remission. He's have, had a few breakthrough episodes here and there that are, um, you know, able to be, um, to be handled or, you know, it may be related to constipation or whatnot. And his ability to eat solid food is increasing. He's able to go camp, return to school, and it's had a big um, uh, improvement in his quality of life for he and his family. So here's some adorable pictures of him doing well. Very cute. I love his shirt in this next one that says good vibes. My favorite. So just a, another few examples of cases. Um, this is AH. She's a child who presented to an inpatient psychiatric facility for FEP, which is uh, first episode psychosis. She had a history of autism. Uh, she was transferred to children's after she had vital sign abnormality when she got antipsychotic. And we actually ended up diagnosing her with NMDA receptor encephalitis. And uh, there's a, a great book called Brain on Fire by a, a New York Times journalist who herself dealt with NMDA receptor encephalitis, psychosis, and catatonia. It, it is, um, those symptoms are, are pretty common um, manifestations of NMDA receptor encephalitis. She had limited response to Ativan at really high doses. We switched her to diazepam and we were able to do, uh, to do treatment for her. And this is a, a quick video of her symptoms when she first presented. It might be a little challenging to hear her. She's she's having some psychotic symptoms. Um, she's talking to someone who's not there. She's also shivering. Um, she's pretty cold. And that, that may be a, a manifestation of some of the catatonic features too. She was having some fluctuations in her blood pressure at the time. I mean, I don't know if you're she's cold. Yes, she's cold and she's saying he left. So you can see these are some of the features there. And this was her when she was in the hospital. And this is her today. And she's doing really, really well. And um, I wanted to show this great video of her just driving. She's back in school, doing amazingly well. And this is just her and her mom just talking about life as a teenager. She's game planning for school, what she's going to do. I think it's always really important to remember that, um, you know, that what the work that we do is really important in trying to restore folks to their quality of life. And uh, it's always nice to see these kinds of things. So in all the cases I've presented to you today about catatonia, ECT was used, but uh, we actually found that most catatonic children do not need ECT to achieve stabilization. So these are some numbers from our clinic. So we have 42 patients with catatonia and the minimum age of catatonic symptoms that we've seen is three, the max is 31. And you can see here the overwhelming majority of patients with catatonic symptoms have profound autism, 64% in our, in our clinic there. And then um, medically seronegative autoimmune encephalitis, NMDA receptor, oh, I'm so sorry, NMDA receptor encephalitis and some of these other inflammatory disease states. And aggression is certainly the most common symptom that we've seen in catatonia, um, particularly in the, the men clinic itself. And we've recruited a lot of patients to our, we have a longitudinal research clinic where we collect data. And we talk to families about that and make sure that we have an open dialogue about that. 
And the overwhelming majority of our catatonic patients we've seen at Children's first and then have said, hey, we'd, we'd like to follow up with you. And, um, you know, it generally has been pretty well received by families. And then about a quarter of the patients that we have treated have needed ECT. And, and you know, when I present this, sometimes the question is, um, would they, if, if ECT were more accessible for children, would there be more patients getting ECT? Would you try ECT sooner in the in the course of things. And that, that may very well be the case, but you know, it's a little hard to tell, but about a quarter of our patients have needed ECT. And then encouragingly only six of the 42 patients that we've been taking care of had needed to be readmitted to an inpatient facility, whether medical or psychiatric after we've um, started taking care of them. So here's our take home points. Uh, children and neurodiverse individuals present more often with externalizing symptoms of catatonia. And again, that means aggression, self-injury, negativism, um, new, new and worsening oppositionality. Children have unique symptoms of catatonia that increases the risk of actually someone missing the diagnosis. ECT and high-dose benzos are the gold standard of treatment, but other medications can be effective. ECT can be a life-saving intervention for adults and children, but it is limited due to restrictive legislation and stigma. And since the 1930s, ECT has been shown to be a safe and effective for children across the myriad of conditions and neurodiverse and neurotypical populations. And early identification and rapid treatment can have positive clinical outcomes. There's a lot of references I'm happy to provide. I do have an acknowledgement slide. Uh, I'm just to thank you to everybody who takes care of these patients and my um, collaborator and dear friend, Dr. Lucarelli, who's on a lot of these papers with me. And a special thank you to the ECT nursing staff who um, they have really risen to the challenge as we've started taking on more and more cases of folks with autism and catatonia. And they really have a passion and, um, and just unique creativity for trying to problem solve around how can we you know, increase access for, for folks. And then a big thank you to our patients and families and a special thank you for the parents that let us use the pictures and videos for our talk today. Thank you very much for this. This is such a highly requested topic. You you really have no idea. We do have a chat and Q&A box if anybody wants to add things there. And I have some questions that myself as well as that I pulled uh, from Facebook. But one is on the active negativism. Um, mm. A lot of times when somebody sees that, they, for somebody who isn't familiar with this, they mm -hmm. might perceive that as a choice. Can you um, yeah, yeah. talk to me a little bit about what is going on that it's not necessarily a choice, that this is a symptom of a biological malfunctioning at that moment? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, again, this is this is why it's so important to involve family early and often, right? Like, because um, kids are going to say no to their parents, right? Like always, young adults are going to say no to their parents. Um, and people say no to things. And so it, it's important to, to coordinate the families to say, okay, you know, is this, is this your child? Is it or is this your family member? Is this how they generally present? Are they this sort of um, resistant to requests that are that are placed upon them? And, you know, I think that one way that I teach some of our fellows and residents to look for this is if someone can't follow any requests at all from anyone, that's abnormal, right? Like 
usually someone, regardless of their sort of level of baseline functioning, is able to follow a request or instruction from from someone or some some sort of lower level kind of request. But if someone's just actively refusing or or declining to participate in any meaningful way at all, that that to me is more suggestive of a catatonic feature than just sort of baseline. I, I hate to even use the term oppositionality, but ba- but sort of baseline refusal um, of requests. Yeah, absolutely. I I had to think while you were going through the acrocyanosis, it got me thinking about, and just for those that don't know, my my daughter has catatonia and is undergoing ECT treatment and things like that. So I was thinking about our own case and it took us forever to get this diagnosis, to get proper treatment. And there were a lot of misdiagnoses along the way. And not because doctors weren't being very, very thorough. They just yeah. didn't know what they were looking at. So I, I was thinking of the acrocyanosis, her PCP at one point was considering if she had Renaud syndrome um, mm. because of the discoloration in her extremities and, and being cold. So I wondered if that was a common misdiagnosis. In the urinary retention, they mm. had thought that it was a non-neurogenic, neurogenic bladder. And the negativism, they thought oppositional defiance, right? So mm. what are some common misdiagnoses that you see because I think that that would be helpful to the community if their children are like getting these kind of collecting these diagnoses of things. Maybe there's one diagnosis underlying that fits better. That's a great question. I think that uh, I, I hesitate to say misdiagnosis because catatonia's presentation is so variable. It can be really difficult to to nail something down in particular. And so one of the things that I would say is um, Ativan is a, a very safe um, option for testing, right? So the way that you diagnose catatonia is that you provide someone with Ativan, it's called the Ativan Challenge, and see if they have clinical improvement. And so oftentimes that's sort of a low hanging fruit that you can say, hey, can we try two milligrams of Ativan to see if my child has improvement in their symptoms or what have you. And, and that would be where I would start because I, there are so many instances of kids with, you know, profound impairment or profound baseline impairment where they have constipation and presents as aggression. That, that's like the classic one. Right. And so there's, I, I always encourage uh, medical providers to work up anything they feel like maybe, maybe present. Uh, but I, I also think that, um, my hope is that the same providers will have catatonia somewhere on the differential, right? Like somewhere where they're considering it as part of, you know, maybe this is what this is. Like, does it all hang together this way? And so when when I talk to, to pediatricians or family care docs who are interested in this topic, what I'll say is like, you know, trust your clinical judgment. Like, do you think it's um, neurogenic bladder? Do you think it's this or the other? But also consider the sort of, um, if, it, you know, the possibility of catatonia and if you want to test for it, the, the risk benefit analysis is pretty good in terms of like, it's just, you know, two milligrams of Ativan. Is it worth trying? Do we see any improvement? And then pursuing it from there. Does that answer yeah. your question? Okay, yes. Jackie. Okay. Mm-hmm. It does. A question that we got from Facebook was what additional improvements might somebody have from ECT? Of course, we're, mm-hmm. we're certainly behaviors at that point are most likely 
the most debilitating factor yeah. for them, uh, whether it's, yeah. you know, insomnia and not being able to sleep or aggression and those kind of things. But um, what additional benefits might somebody see? I think it, it depends on, you, you certainly won't, e ECT, is, ECT is used to treat something, right? So uh, in the absence of anything, it's not going to change folks' baseline sort of level of impairment, right? But if you have someone who's having symptoms of catatonia, it can improve those. And there's there's lots of features of catatonia, and the reduced communication is one that I, I've seen pretty frequently, where it's like someone starts getting ECT and their verbal ability improves. That that tends to be one, but that that's also something that I would say is more directly related to catatonia because again, the reduced communication episode is there. And so, you know, ECT is is a great treatment for folks that have an a identifiable thing that you're treating with ECT. And so the hope is, is that if you can treat that, then some of the other things will come, come along as well. But we always, you know, caution families that the ECT is not, is not going to help with sort of the folks baseline level of impairment. Like it won't improve someone's IQ. It won't, um, you know, really improve executive functioning in the absence of like in the way the executive functioning would improve if catatonia is improved. So that's, that's kind of the context there. There always has to be a identifiable item that you're specifically addressing with ECT in that context. Yeah. And, and, you know, having gone through it, I almost feel like catatonia is this big inhibitor of skill mm. development. And once mm. it starts to lift, those skills can really start to emerge. Um, even though, you know, of course it's not increasing IQ or anything like that. In our case, we have um, noticed her language certainly improved quite a bit. That was one of the first indicators that it was working. And then at school, they're saying, you know, she she's doing better with cutting skills. Um, we've just noticed overall, she's more alert and in a calmer way, not like alert and busyness and having to get into everything. She's just got a really pleasant energy now um, about her. So it's been really successful for us. Uh, Rachel came in a little late um, and she's just asking for a brief overview real quick of catatonia, what it looks like in nonverbal children that are profoundly autistic. Hmm. Yeah, it's um, it's a it's a change. It's a change in baseline. You know, that again, I, I think I, I'm maybe beating that horse to death a little bit, but it's, it's so important to know your, your, your patient's baseline. So if you have someone who's non-speaking, but they have really good communication skills using a communication device, or they're able to sign the, the most common symptom of catatonia in that population is reduced ability to communicate. And that can look so different from person to person. And it's not uh, super well captured on uh, the catatonia rating scales. And then the other most common features of catatonia and autism are um, hyperactivity, including self-injury or aggression, and then the active negativism that we talked about. Um, active negativism is a more kind of rare um, manifestation of things, but the, the negativism in catatonia, again, looks, um, it doesn't discriminate against who's requesting them to do X, Y, or Z, right? So if if everyone is saying, so I have a, I have a mentor who always used to say, if you can't conduct a catatonia exam for someone, that is a sign that they probably or may have catatonia, right? They're not able to meaningfully participate in the exam. That should be a red flag for you, uh, which I think is a, a good kind of capture of 
what catatonia can look like in terms of the the negativism. That's really helpful. This was an, a question from the community too. How soon starting ECT treatment uh, should you be able to see improvement or does that vary? And does it get worse before it gets better or should you expect continual improvement? Or does very that savvy questions. <laughs> yes, very savvy questions. Um, it, it's variable person to person. I hesitate to say it can it gets worse before it gets better because I, I think of that as more of like the natural progression of a condition before the treatment kicks in, right? Like if you have catatonia and you're five treatments in and things are worsening, to me that's saying, okay, we're just not to the point where ECT is helping yet, but the catatonia has been worsening anyway. And so we're kind of looking at it chasing its tail a little bit. The other question is, is how... There's some really interesting data from Nira Gazudin and her group at Michigan, and they do a lot of work with folks with um, with autism and catatonia. And they've shown that folks with autism, for whatever reason, maybe because their brains are hyperconnected, is that they need more ECT than your neurotypical person with depression, right? So Nira and her group found that, you know, some folks with autism needed 30 to 40 or more acute series ECT treatments, meaning more than one a week to achieve stabilization. And then the majority of them transitioned to maintenance where they were getting one a week or less frequent. And so for traditional mood disorders like depression in um, geriatric populations, which is sort of like the bread and butter of depression of ECT, you're looking at six to 12 treatments. So there's a pretty big gap in terms of, of what that can look like. And so, and the, the other thing to, you know, to say too, is that all of this is sort of emerging, which is why we're a research clinic. And we, we have a really open dialogue with our, our patients' families of saying like, we're doing the best we can. We're, we're following this sort of protocol and this is what this looks like. But also we're kind of, we're developing the research as we, as we go. And so the best thing that I can say is reporting, you know, near his data and our data, and then also referencing the fact that, you know, of, of our clinical observations and what we've seen. Great. Thank you. I have two final questions. So if anybody else has, and then we'll let you go. I I love that you added in about the Lancet Commission and profound autism. That is our, as you know, like a, a big issue with our organization is supporting that measure. So my question is, I, I love that you support it, but you also are on the speaker circuit and you're involved in a lot of medical professional organizations. What do yeah. you feel like the temperature is with physicians in general regarding the term profound autism? Is it being supported broadly across the medical field yet? I think that I think there's interest because it it frankly makes e research easier to do. I understand some of the reservations around the terminology, in particular, this desire to say, look, autism is so heterogeneous and so different from person to person. We'd like for you to describe specific features, right? But when you have a word limit of 5,000 for a manuscript, that's really difficult to do. I, I definitely understand the sentiment for sure. And so I think that there's a increase in awareness of the terminology and likely utilization of the terminology because it allows us to conduct research that isn't being conducted, right? Where you, you know, previously would have folks, like we talked about at the beginning of the, the talk, only 5% of folks with autism plus intellectual disability are included in clinical trials. So how are we supposed to answer questions like how do we address irritability? How do we address mood disorders for our children if they're 
if they can't be included in clinical trials. And so, you know, I think Dr. Lord's efforts in that regard are, are good in that there's a terminology that we can say like, hey, this is what this is. We would like to do research in this area. And this can be a helpful way for us to, to do that. Yeah, and it's, it's something we talk about often, the underrepresentation in research and that research then goes into policy and it, it just has really created a mess for us. Which mm-hmm. leads me to kind of my last question. During your slides, you showed that how difficult it is for somebody to find even an outpatient psychiatrist who might know about this, as well as the difficulty if they do need to be inpatient and how yeah. rare it yeah. is to be able to find a, a facility that can take this uh, type of care. So then I think it was the LS patient you know, because he couldn't find an inpatient facility, he had to go home to be stabilized at home with his family, right? As a physician who treats this subpopulation regularly, kind of your bread and butter, what do you envision for your patients in an ideal world down the road, we improve policy, what do you envision would be appropriate supports for them to be available outpatient so they didn't have to go into the hospital? Mm. Man, that's a great question. Um, the The overwhelming majority of patients we treat in ECT are outpatient. And part of that is because we can't admit a lot of them inpatient. And, and it's, a, it's a little bit of it cuts both ways. You know, it, ideally, you know, if you needed ECT, you could come into a hospital, get ECT, get stabilized and go home. But what the research has been showing us from Nira's group is that like it's a it's a longer haul than that, right? In terms of getting ECT on a regular basis, and so you know what I think if I had a magic wand and could get whatever I wanted, it'd be great. Uh, but I, I think having really robust supports at home, and then also too being able to coordinate with families around like, hey, are you going to be able to make it in? Like, is this a day that you're going to be able to come in to get ECT, or is this a day that we need to reschedule you? You know, or do you have assistance in getting in? Do you have a someone like a home health aide who's able to come and assist you in getting your child to ECT? Because there, there's also, you know, there's also downsides to inpatient sort of care, I think, for this particular population in that separation anxiety is, you know, likely a big deal. Kids and young adults with, you know, lower baseline impairment are more likely to have aggressive behaviors if they're away from their home and the, the lack of routine and so on. And so I think that, you know, if, if families are able to get support to say, like, my child has this going on, we need to take them here. Is there a policy or is there support where that can help us in, in just even the transportation and then helping us when we're at home, I think would be, you know, certainly the idealized version of that. Yeah, well, you're certainly speaking my language on the transportation. <laughs> yeah, that would certainly be very helpful. But I know you are an incredibly, incredibly busy man. In fact, right before this webinar, another person said, does he ever come up for air? We really appreciate you giving us time today. And I will be going through and editing this and blurring out any kind of faces that were used here and things like that. And then we will upload this onto YouTube to be available for replay. Should be up maybe tomorrow. But I appreciate it, Dr. Smith, as always. So helpful. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, everyone. That concludes our webinar today. I appreciate everybody coming by. Take care. Take care.